Welcome along to Leaders in Focus here at IMG Studios, another stripped back conversation with a leading sports industry executive. Yes, today we'll be talking to Alan Gilpin, the chief executive of World Rugby, who's hot-footed it back from France, where the Rugby World Cup has been playing out over the last few weeks. We'll be getting his full tournament debrief. Fantastic tournament, brilliant audiences in France, brilliant audiences around the world, and ultimately that's what you know that's what we're, we're in it for. We'll be hearing about private finance and its role in the growth of the women's game. The investments needed to move quickly and the commercial return are slightly disconnected. And we'll be hearing how he channels his emotions as a leader. I've you know, tear or two in the eye at the end of a World Cup of I'm, I'm not ashamed to say. This is Leaders in Focus. Alan Gilpin, great to have you with us. Thank you for doing this. We are talking just a couple of weeks after the Rugby World Cup. How was it for you? Have you recovered? I'm recovering, I think, um, and uh, great to be here. Brilliant tournament, uh, long, uh, longer than we've had previously. That's one of the things we're, we're looking at for the future. Uh, great rugby, which is you know the starting point for us. Um, felt like a bit of an epic tournament in many respects. So lots of uh, good rugby, but... Um, look, fantastic tournament, brilliant audiences in France, brilliant audiences around the world, and ultimately that's what you know that's what we're, we're in it for. We're going to look uh, at a few of the uh, aspects of the Rugby World Cup in a moment. Interested in the debrief process, what do these weeks after the tournament look like for you? Bit of rest and recovery first for everybody. So we've had a kind of week of that, but straight into exactly that debrief because actually, like with so many events, you've got you know you've got your your organising committee current for quite a short period of time. So we've really gotten from now until to the end of the year to, to do a debrief. And that includes French government and other stakeholders who are involved. So before everyone mentally moves on to including ourselves to whatever's next, that, that debrief is pretty important. And because we're shifting our model in the future, this was the last Rugby World Cup under a quite traditional kind of outsourced to a, to a host uh, organising committee where our, our Rugby World Cup's going forward and much more of a JV. There's, it's almost more important that we capture more of that learning because we're not doing it in quite the same way in the future. Is that a big shared Google Doc? What's it will be. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, I mean, look, enormous amounts of information to share on every aspect of you know of of, of what is now a really really big event. You know, so 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 absolutely. Length of the tournament is something that you mentioned. Seven eight weeks. We're in an era of player safety and player welfare. How do you get to a point where the tournament is maybe a little bit more compact? And is that an aim? thinking about yeah, tournaments to come. Absolutely an aim and actually we've just we've just kind of done it. Um we've looked at it a lot in the last four or five years. The reason this tournament became longer was that we'd already baked in our tournament format. And in fact we'd already baked in our um host venues and cities in France and then made a decision with international rugby players who are our kind of player body that we deal with at the international level to guarantee every player, every team a minimum five day rest between matches, which it seems crazy now that we hadn't done that before, but that, that was a player safety and welfare measure. Because we'd already baked the format in, that meant we had to add a week to the pool phase, effectively. And we've gone from a six-week, seven-week, six-week, seven-weekends tournament to a seven-week, eight-weekend tournament. And my, that extra week felt like about a year, I think, to everybody, including the players. And what it meant was that every team also had a prolonged rest period, which not everyone enjoyed from a from a player perspective and a team perspective in terms of momentum. So... We knew already coming into this tournament that we needed for the next Men's World Cup to get back to a, a more compact tournament. And the answer to that, as counterintuitive as it sounds, is we've taken the time, the opportunity to, to expand to 24 teams, which means we've got six pools of four 
and we've reduced the pool phase by a week while still keeping that minimum rest period in. So we've now got a women's Rugby World Cup in 2025 with 16 teams, four pools of four, and men's with 24, six pools of four, and they feel a bit more compact. And, you know, you'll remember in, in previous Rugby World Cups, I mean, apart from probably Mondays in the pool phase, we always had matches every day. And even though that's hard work from a, from a tournament delivery perspective, actually from a fan and player experience perspective, again, the momentum that creates the kind of festival that creates the media opportunities that creates a, a pretty significant. So we want to get back to that where we kind of own the space a bit more. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the tier two nations. A few mismatches in the pool phase, which is something we've seen at Rugby World Cups past as well. How do you assess the performance of those emerging nations and, and what do you see as some of the next steps to bring them uh, into the knockout phase ultimately and, and into a more competitive place? Look, it's a, it's a huge challenge for, for a sport like rugby, and it's challenging in lots of sports, but in a sport like rugby, and particularly, I think, in the men's landscape at the moment, to, to close the gap is, is challenging, and there are a lot of different elements to that, I mean, a number of which we, we can touch on in terms of investment, in terms of, most importantly, providing the right type of regular competition for those emerging uh, nations who aren't playing you know, in, in what we've got, which is two closed competitions, you know, therein lies part of the challenge. The Six Nations, as wonderful as it is, means that for the other teams in Europe, if you're Georgia, you're Spain, you're Romania, as we've seen, it's hard to close that gap because you're not playing against those teams on a regular basis. Similarly for Japan and Fiji and others that are outside of the existing rugby championship. So addressing that, and we've just done that in this new global calendar discussion, again, across the men's and women's game, we'd already made some steps with a new competition that's just completed in the women's game, WXV. Putting something similar in place in the men's game has been really important. But it isn't just that, it is about investment, it's about building high performance programmes with, with those nations. We were thrilled to see Portugal and Chile probably more competitive than people expected, and we kind of knew they would be. Everyone was thrilled to see the kind of fairy tale that is, is Fiji. Um, but, but again, there's a huge amount of hard work and investment behind Fiji reaching the quarterfinals. Uh, for, for the second time in their history because they're playing as what's called the Fijian Drua in Super Rugby Pacific, the core of that group, week in, week out, in a daily training environment together. Lo and behold, performances on the field reflect that. The same with the Portuguese team who we fund in a competition called Rugby Europe Super Cup, core of the team together all the time. So we know that's part of the answer to, to narrowing that gap, but you know, more investment and more opportunity uh, is, is the key part of that. Perhaps you don't often get a chance to watch rugby at home on the sofa. Um, maybe you, you have to be there um, live. But if you are watching on TV and you've got the sound off for some reason and a penalty is awarded, are you confident that you will understand why that penalty has been awarded every, t every time? I'd love to say yes, but I mean, it, you know, the honest answer is no. And I think that's one of our big challenges as a sport. Um, and it was really interesting in the weekend. Um, I'm a Fulham season ticket holder, so watching watching the round ball game and actually talking to people in the, you know sitting around me in that environment, um, and the, you know we haven't been talking about VAR versus what we call TMO, but you know the same type of technology and and people saying as football fans and maybe as casual rugby fans who've ended up watching rugby because it's a World Cup and that's again one of the brilliant things that World Cups do in terms of bringing people in and hopefully holding interest. You know exactly that watching it even with the commentary. Do fans understand enough about what is going on? I think we've got a job to do in not just the way the game's played and officiated, but the way the game's presented to 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 you know to help fans better understand what's going on. 
make it simple for people. And, you know, one of the things, you know, we've, we've done quite a bit of work on this, um, you know, and, and we can play around with some things now going into a period uh, after a World Cup. And certainly, you know, you, we use sevens as a bit of an incubator for some of those things. The language we use, the language commentators use, people are talking about caterpillar rucks and jackals. And it's like, well, am I watching a nature program here or am I watching, you know, international sports? So I think, you know, only talking to avid fans in the way we present the sport is a challenge. And we need to, you know, t to take a different tone of voice, I think, in, in some places. Although I think David Attenborough presenting the rugby would be, be, interesting. Would be good. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned TMO and communication. It struck me watching the tournament that the clarity of communication between the officials, which is obviously broadcast, is fantastic and very explanatory for a kind of not an expert audience. And I guess has been worked on and evolved. Yeah and something that football could probably look at at the moment. But how satisfied were you looking back at the tournament again with how TMO and technology in general worked? Look, we've, we've embraced technology certainly more than ever in recent times. I mean, you know, in that space, in terms of officiating now in the player welfare and safety space, and we're using instrumented smart mouth guards throughout the elite, level of, uh, the elite levels of the sport, that's really important. So technology's role in rugby is ever expanding. Um, I think we had some really good outcomes of that during the during the World Cup, and we had some areas again where there's there's room for improvement. We we introduced the kind of off-field foul play review bunker, as, as it was as it was known, to try and both speed up the game and, and keep fan interest. And again, whether it's TMO or VAR, we know that those are the moments in a game when whether you're in the stadium or you're a fan at home, is dead time, and, and no one wants that in in the presentation of, of of an entertainment product. Ultimately, the bunker worked really well in terms of decision making. I think, particularly early in the tournament, one of the areas we weren't doing well was communicating how that decision was made, either to the viewer at home or even to the viewer in the stadium. And we improved that over the tournament. But actually, that's an area now to sit back and say, and look at, for example, how cricket do it as a cricket World Cup obviously taking place right now. They play back in the stadium brilliantly and they play back actually on the broadcast those reviews brilliantly i think we could learn a bit from from that foul play bunker is again fantastic language maybe maybe we should introduce that instead of the naughty step in terms <laughs> oh, of that's quite nice. for parenting for parents foul thing, play yeah. review bunker yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> five minutes in turn, the, in the turn, foul. That, yeah. turn that yellow card into a ring. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it's interesting though because regardless of sport through the advent of technology and the application of technology feels like we're in an era of increasing of new rules, increasingly complicated rules, interpretations, new precedents being set. As World Rugby, how are you looking at just the, the, the complicated nature of some of these new elements of the game and, and sort of how do you see that evolving? It's a challenge for a sport like rugby. We've got a very complex sport that's, unless you've played it, or grown up with someone who's played it, you know, in, in your household, probably coming to the sport new. I mean, to the to the earlier point, you look at it and think, what uh, what on earth's going on here? Um, so, how do we make that much simpler for people? I think, and that's to make it more enjoyable to play and to make it more enjoyable, and entertaining to watch. So, we now, and we probably get we're better at this as a federation in the last few years than than previously, getting the right people together. So, you know, if you look at it only through the prism, for example, of kind of high performance specialists and coaches. You don't make the game any simpler. In fact, arguably, you make it more uh, complex. So how do we get fan groups involved in, in feeding back on what we call laws or rules? Certainly the match officials, because if anyone wants a simpler, easier to understand game, it's the match officials who are, who are responsible for, for the implementation of that. But also, you know, our broadcast partners, media partners, 
player groups, you know, getting all of those voices together, which isn't easy to do, and that's quite a lengthy process, but I think we're better at that now. And we've done that both in the men's game and separately in the women's game in the last couple of years because we have to recognise that the women's game is evolving incredibly quickly in terms of professional rugby, but we don't necessarily have to follow all the same challenges we've created in the men's game, whether that's the product on the field or the way it's presented. So we, we sort of, I guess, put that under the banner of the shape of the game and try and look at, are we presenting uh, a game that's simple to understand and that's enjoyable to play? If not, what can we change and how quickly can we change? Because one of the challenges, again, in a contact sport is any change that seems on the face of it pretty obvious to make, or what are the unintended consequences of that from a safety, welfare uh, perspective? So there's there's quite a, a lot in that in terms of moving the game forward, but I think we're more committed to that than ever um, because we want to be a global sport that's got fans around the world. Let's have a little bit of a, a conversation about the, the women's game. We've touched on it already a little bit. Um, I think everybody agrees there's a huge opportunity there that you're in the middle of exploring. Where do you see the potential growing pains with the, the women's game over the next few years? Look, there's, I think with a lot of sports, the investment that's needed to move quickly and the commercial return are slightly disconnected. So, you know, we're, we are as a sport, not just world rugby, but as a sort of ecosystem, everyone's investing hard because you can see whether you're talking participation, growth, certainly audience growth that we're already seeing and long-term commercial growth, the opportunity's huge. You know, it's, we talk about it being the single biggest growth opportunity for certainly for rugby and, and we believe that, but a lot of the investment hard work is now for future growth um, that's challenging i think and it's you know taking everybody again with us so what we don't want in 10 years time is is women's professional rugby is only established and sustainable in the same places for example that men's is so there's a very different opportunity with the women's game in india than there is for men's rugby for example you know the us women's sevens team potentially meddling in a home games in la in 28 can be massive for rugby not just for sevens rugby so so i think there's it's, it's how you try and focus in on those opportunities without um, breaking the bank, quite honestly, in, in the meantime. So, so doing that in a kind of responsible way, but really dialing up that investment. And that's where, you know, we as a sport, again, more broadly than just World Rugby, I think are looking at investment partners, capital raise opportunities as a real opportunity. Because if we want to have, for example, a women's professional league in the US quickly, well, why do that heavy lifting ourselves? Why not find partners to invest in that type of uh, and that type of concept together. So, yeah, opportunity is huge. Sensible but fast investment, I think, is is the challenge and, you know, what, what we're focused on. You mentioned um, sort of outside investment, private equity. We're in an era now in rugby union, certainly, of um, all sorts of different financial companies coming in and speculating what's your overall view of how that's playing out clearly you're open to it if you'd like to move forward with uh, something for the women's game but what are the um uh potential booby traps that you want to be avoiding with uh, with this we are observing it to some extent within rugby and closely observing it, obviously both as a kind of regulator and governing body but also as an event and media uh, owner and, and what does that mean in terms of opportunity? And, you know, obviously Six Nations have taken investment, a number of professional leagues have. Um, and so we're observing it in our own space and we're observing it certainly more broadly. It's become, as you say, a bit of a phenomenon currently in the sort of sports and entertainment industry. So I think it's about understanding what's working and not working. We've certainly seen, even in 
I think potentially some of the global calendar work we've just done across the men's and women's games that better alignment of stakeholder uh, outcomes, better alignment of uh, stakeholders driving towards collaboration, investment's definitely helping in that space. Mm. Um, you know, is it is it moving it forward as quickly as it might do in other industries? Probably not because of the nature of sport and certainly the nature of sort of federated membership models that we have in in sports like rugby. But, um, you know, the opportunity, I and mean, we talked about, uh, about it earlier a little bit, you know, how do you make your sport more entertaining, more understood, more global? Most of those things require investment and speed. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, private capital um, and private investment is helping in those spaces. I think in terms of booby traps, Doing that responsibly, again, doing that in a in an environment where you're taking a lot of different stakeholders with you, you know, crucial group in that for us as a sport is bringing the players with us and making sure that, you know, what we what we can't have in in a sport like rugby is is private money just drives, for example, wage inflation to a point where, you know, the club game, for example, is you know completely unsustainable, or we've only got a couple of places in the world where it is sustainable. So. There are, there are, I think there are watchouts in that space, and there are clearly watchouts in the longer term around, and I hate to use the word control, but making sure the sport is controlling the game rather than, uh, the, you know, it being controlled you know, necessarily by others. And that, you know, that juxtaposition probably of what happens on the field with everything investing around creating a better product and entertainment, I think, is is quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about you. <laughs> it's Alan. Therapy. It's Alan time. Yeah. COO of World Rugby for a good long period, uh, had a stint as interim CEO and then became CEO officially in uh, 2021. Yep. Talk a little bit about the adjustment when you go from COO, C-suite, important, critical role, to the boss. Yeah, I mean, again, fascinating in one sense because it was during COVID. Um, so, you know, come out of Rugby World Cup in, in 2019, I was, as you say, already COO, quite focused on running World Cups and running our sort of commercial business. Brett Gosper, my predecessor and, and my boss at the time, um, you know, then stepped down at the end of, of 2020. So that all happened, that whole thought process and, 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 and Brett moving happened during COVID and then obviously uh, an interim period and then and then eventually uh, appointed as, as CEO in, uh, in March 21. So in one sense, the adjustment was a little bit kind of artificial because we weren't together with colleagues. I wasn't providing maybe leadership in the sort of traditional sense. I had the benefit of having been sort of six, seven years within World Rugby. I think that the adjustment would have been really hard for somebody coming from outside of the organisation in at that point. Um, and as we've come through that and you know, through the last couple of years, I think the adjustment's been significant because I, I went from running really the business side of world rugby to now taking responsibility for the whole I've spent a lot more time on issues like player safety and welfare the way the game is shaped how it's played um, the sort of pure rugby side than, than I ever did in the past so that's been fascinating challenging and invigorating probably all at the same time look great great team great colleagues we've grown a lot in that time we've gone from probably 150 people pre-COVID in world rugby to around 300 so it's a big period of growth and transformation uh, as well. So that's been, again, a lot of fun, but hard work. Would you care to give yourself a grade so far? No, you, mu you must give yourself a grade. I'm probably, a, I think I'm probably a seven out of 10 right now. Um, you went for the numerical system, mm, which was interesting, rather yeah. than a letter. Okay. And rather than a letter. You're going to have to change that as you go into the, to gonna America. Be, I'm going to be a B then, maybe a B minus. Um, 
Look, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of opportunity. I think rugby's got a great opportunity to really grow as a sport, to really take hold of some of the advantages and opportunities that we've got. Values-based, again, a sport that gets the pulse racing for a lot of people in a lot of places, but also we're a big sport in a small number of countries, many of which are relatively small economies. That's a lot of ambition to change. You know, the US, the women's game are massive drivers of those opportunities. So... I've probably graded myself lower than, than than I should because I think we've got a lot of space still to, to head into. You look around the rugby world and, you know, there are large physical people everywhere and maybe there are some people who come across as a bit intimidating. And I just wonder, in your job, having to press a lot of flesh and talk to a lot of people, is there anyone that intimidates you or you kind of, you have to G yourself up for before you talk to them? I wouldn't, not, no particular individuals. I mean, there are, I think we've got some people in the sport who have been around a long time, huge knowledge, incredibly passionate. So we're lucky as a sport, we've, we've got a lot of former players you know, in the sport as a whole. So I don't think there's anyone who stands out as particularly intimidating. But again, I think one of the things, and it's certainly a post-COVID thing more than ever, spending more time with our membership, with our key stakeholders has been a really important focus for me in the last couple of years. So getting out and, and me, and I guess that breaks down some of that intimidation or, or, or potentially intimidating factor is just spending time with people. And again, ultimately realizing what is binding us all together is a desire to to move the sport forward, to really celebrate the, the, what we have in the sport and ultimately to grow it. One of the perceptions around rugby is uh, sometimes that it's it feels a bit committee heavy. And working within a, a federation, I imagine you, you experience a lot of that. And you talked about doing a lot of work around governance, which is very often the less visible yeah. but important, critical uh, stuff that you as a, as a CEO need to do. Give us the pros and cons of, of committees and, and the reality of, of working in that environment. I think it can be hugely frustrating at times. And we, you know, we see that. I certainly feel that at times, having had a very sort of commercial uh, background before I was uh, I was in world rugby, even though I knew the organisation really well from from my time at IMG and the work that we we did with them. Um, so frustrating, I think, and it, and when it's frustrating, it's largely because you're not moving quickly enough. I think one of the things we've done well with our own governance reviews and and progress in the last couple of years, and again, I know that a number of, of federations and governing bodies have, and and again, partly maybe influenced by either external capital and external investment coming in or the desire to be ready for that and, and there's, there's some of that probably in our own approach um, committees when they're functioning well I think are making decisions based on great information a lot of our responsibility as a, as a kind of C-suite as an organisation is to make sure we're providing the right information in the right way to move forward through those structures quite quickly you know again we have a sport that's inherently you know quite physical in its nature law change player safety issues, all of those things need the right people discussing them, bringing together player groups, officials groups, some of our membership, but also those processes need to be you know, as efficient as possible. So I think we're, we're getting better at it, but it can, it can feel, I think, certainly to the outside world, like, wow, you're really kind of trudging through committee after committee. From a government's perspective, you know, reduce the duplication, put better processes in place, create the right information flow. Hopefully people are making decisions in the right way. Have you got a favourite committee? Oof. <laughs> are you allowed to say? We've got a lot of committees. Um, 
a lot of the work we do in, in the player welfare space, I think, in the last two years has been incredibly important for us as a sport, not just in response to litigation and, and issues around head impact, but just, again, leaning into technology. And so I think our committees around what we would call men's and women's high performance that consider those issues are, are really important in what we do and, and a lot of the unseen part probably of the sport. And, and that's fine. What's your favourite committee? I don't really have one. Mm. But I'm going to think about it and reflect on it for next. We did that. We had a period, I think, where we had a committee on committees. So a committee talking about trying to make other committees better and reducing them. It sounds like meetings about meetings. Yeah, we don't have a tie committee. I'm pleased to say. Before you joined World Rugby IRB, as it was then, I think you ran the hospitality business at London 2012, and in the lead up to the London Olympics. With that in mind what would you say now in 2023 is the perfect sports hospitality experience wow um and why is it rugby i think rugby provides a great landscape for what we now call premium experiences and and hospitality um you know it's it's, again values based i think that you know people the the atmosphere people love there's there's no kind of animosity we've got no segregation in a, in a crowd, the, the atmosphere that builds. We've just seen, obviously, that you know, writ large in some brilliant games in, in a Rugby World Cup. So there's a great... You know, that's one part of what you need for a great premium experience is what is happening in the stadium, what's the atmosphere like. I think, I think in terms of what experience is being delivered, that's the bit that I think since, since I was doing uh, Hospitality of London 2012 has shifted the most because people are connecting in all different ways and you know it's no longer really about sitting down at a table of 10 or a table at 12 and having a seated meal and and then going off and watching your sport and maybe doing a bit of the same afterwards it's much more about an immersive you know experience of connecting with you know if you're the host connecting with your, your clients and your guests or if you're the guest you know having that experience around you so I think we're seeing a lot of that um that creates its own challenges in terms of the way that facilities and stadiums and infrastructure is is built and i think we're seeing therefore a shift in in that as well i mean you look at to, to pick one example i think that the facilities for example at tottenham hotspur stadium i mean absolutely outstanding and that's how to build the the, the landscape for world-class hospitality and, and premium experiences and fair play to them for the investment they've made in that you know the, the trouble is as everyone can see is that's out of date quite quickly and, and people move on to the next experience and you've only got to look at the venues that are being built in the US around those spaces to see uh, to see where that's headed so yeah I think rugby again has got a great opportunity to be a real leader in that space but it's not one size fits all one experience you know what works at the Hong Kong sevens is very different to what we're going to see at a world cup or, or a six nations match let's hone in a little bit on the emotion of rugby because I think more than any other sport perhaps the combination of atmosphere the anthems, the camaraderie amongst the the different sets of fans, particularly at national level, it yep. seems genuinely unique. The lack of spite as well. The lack of spite in the crowd. Yes. What what is it about rugby that that taps into that sort of emotional connection so well? No, it's, it's a great question. One we think about, you know, a lot as you can imagine, because it's something you know, we, we absolutely want to hold on to. Um, and again, we've just seen it in, in a Women's World Cup last year in New Zealand. We've just seen it, you know, on a very large scale in, in, a, in a Men's World Cup. I think you, you can go all the way back to the kind of values of the game on the field. I mean, it is fascinating to watch a, a group of young kids playing rugby and then maybe the same group of young kids playing football and how their behaviours are slightly different. 
in the way they talk to the referee, in the way that they interact with each other. So there's, there is something incredibly values-based about that. And, and we've got to be careful that that's not, we don't make that kind of holier than thou because that shouldn't, you know, they are, they've got to be genuine values, not something that's kind of marketing sort of puff on our part for sure. But there is something to hold on to there in the way that rugby's taught and, and, and the skills uh, that it teaches. And, and then you take that through into the crowd. And as you say, you've just got this incredible atmosphere where you've got no segregation of fans, a very physical, emotional sport taking place on the field. The fans often, certainly in, in, again in World Cups, very, very engaged with that and yet no aggression or animosity in the venue um, and, and a very celebratory atmosphere. I mean, for example, I thought the French fans were brilliant. I mean, regardless of whether France were playing or not, even before um, France uh, exited in the quarterfinals, you know, you'd be in a stadium, I was in a stadium in Lille watching Tonga and Romania, I would imagine of the 48,000 people that there, probably 70% of them are French on a Sunday evening, just creating a brilliant spectacle of, of, of entertainment in, in the crowd, singing their anthem, still singing the French anthem, great anthem that it is. Um, so there's, there's something in that that we just have to keep moving forward with. And I think as long as we can provide that ever increasing spectator experience, but hold that together, there's something really special there that maybe other sports don't quite have. And that emotion will continue then, I think. When do you get emotional on the job? Um, well, actually, you know, quite often, and I think, you know, uh, we've got an amazing committed team of people in World Rugby at every level, you know, so we're nearly 300 people in World Rugby. I think the passion that people bring to the job can't, you know, that, that cuts through any kind of corporate um, hardness that you, you know you have from having been around for a long time. So it's certainly emotional about what we're doing and our connection to purpose. I think that's really important to me individually, but in, in the way that certainly I approach sort of leadership and, and ultimately emotional about the game. And, and you know, I had a you know, tear or two in the eye at the end of a World Cup, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, men's and women's again. I mean, just, you know, amazing uh, atmosphere, amazing occasions and to, you know, for your job to be part of something that's so special to so many people is quite an emotional attachment, I think. So you're a crier, are you, Alan? I can be. Mm. Just not on camera. Just not. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the hardest decision that you've had to make. One of the hardest decisions I had to make, actually, going back a, a number of years now, was to leave IMG. I had an amazing kind of experience with IMG. I joined IMG as a lawyer. Um, loved it, you know, loved working in a very commercial environment, but obviously in sport and, you know, literally couldn't sort of lap it up enough in terms of the learning experience of, of that and, and understanding deal making and sort of commercial side of sport. And I had this great opportunity. I was about to move with my very young family at the time to New Zealand to, to, to be involved for the last couple of years of planning for Rugby World Cup. So we we're going to move there full time. I paid the first three months still rankles now, paid the first three months deposit on the house, found a kindergarten place for my, for then four-year-old, I think, daughter. Um, and so to, to not do all of that, but I had this amazing opportunity to work on London Olympic Games. And, and uh, you know, a number of people said to me, a home Olympics, you know, and it was a, a step up in terms of leadership role for me. So, but that was a really tough decision. You know, one of those ones you have to sort of really make with the family and, and you know, but I don't look back with any regrets on that, but tough, really tough decision at the time. Nice to get the, that deposit back there, right? It would be good to get that deposit back. I can't believe he kept it. <laughs> We're about to wrap up. What's the next big decision you have to make once we switch the cameras off here? Um, I think we've got a lot of big decisions to make in rugby in the next couple of years. And, and 
you know, again, really ambitious strategic plan. We've just gone through a period of a massive uh, Men's World Cup, a really successful Women's World Cup. We're coming into a period, next Women's World Cup in England in 25. I think we've got a lot of decisions to make about now what we do with that ambition. So how aggressive are we going to be about pursuing growth? How aggressive are we going to be about um, being brave about the way the game's presented as we were talking earlier on? So I think there's a lot of big decisions coming for the sport. I'm one part of those decisions, but I feel, I guess, the responsibility of trying to drive forward uh, towards those things. But again, that's what's great about the job. Alan Gilpin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.